Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and I'm here with my two brothers, Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis. Today, we're talking country. You can learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com, follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Now let's talk country. Welcome to Brother, Brother, Brother Pod. Today we are talking country and uh, in fringe and alternative country, sort of like the uh, the burnt crust around the brisket. I'm with Wyndham and Christian, and uh, you know we're going to start kind of talking about the golden era country and, and, and a little bit, and then how that sort of broke off into what became outlaw country, what then became sort of singer-songwriter country, and then uh, end the, the segments with a little bit about alternative country and, and sort of the... the stars of today are the people that we think are, are doing the best country music in general is something that i love i think uh christian kind of grew up around and, and win certainly uh has dabbled in as well i think like punk rock and blues for us it, it's sort of a um a to the you know bare the bone music style that that really emphasizes sharp songwriting you know uh usually hard living and uh you know at times really uh sort of intricate uh, musicianship as well. So, you know, kind of the era of country that <clears throat> folks harken back to, and, and most of the people that we love harken back to, is, is what's considered sort of the golden era of country. And you can say it really started in the 20s and came all the way into the late 60s and even the 70s. And then there was a, a very obvious split in the 70s. And we'll get into that in a little bit. But first, just kind of paying respect to those that came before, you know. Most folks that, that get into roots music, Americana, country music, start with Hank Williams, move their way up into the, the Johnny Cash world, Merle Haggard, Patsy Cline, George Jones, Jerry Lee Lewis. And that was really where country western came out of the sticks or out of the, the backwoods and, uh, you know, had a music capital in Nashville. Um, the Grand Ole Opera, Opry was, was the epicenter and these guys started to cross over into mainstream American radio. And uh, before we move on to, to kind of the, the break from that, let's talk a little bit about those artists and uh, and kind of where they stand. I mean, I think it was yeah. a... Sorry, go ahead, Wynn. No, I was just going to say, I think it sort of, you know, has the same um, arc as, as, you know, blues and, and, you know, to some degree rock and roll, wherein, like, your, your original, you know, your sort of classic country stars are really the first people who recorded country i mean before that it was a, a you know sort of passed down generationally um you know you think of something like the carter family who existed well before um you know sort of recording arts started um you know they were a touring uh group of uh, musical you know a musical family uh, touring group but uh you know it really is i guess the advent of recorded music that that brings us our first set of stars yeah, and in particular, I think you know you got to point to OK Records, that uh, that Atlanta label that really you know got a got a lot of this stuff started in the even the twenties and thirties, and then sort of you know uh, post war era. Um, who's who's that? Like the Leuven Brothers, that kind of uh, Bob Wills, or who's Bob, who's OK? Bob Wills, and uh, you know you've got Bob Wills like. Um, What's uh, Fiddlin' Joe, uh, John Carson or Joe Carson? I can't remember which, but uh, I think it's John Carson. He's definitely and, Fiddlin'. Um, 
Oh, he's, he's fiddling everybody. <laughs> um, and, uh, but, uh, no, I mean, that was like, I mean, he was like a twenties artist. And I remember, you know, my, um, grandfather listened to him and, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty cool stuff. The quality of the recordings a little bit, um, you know, it's what you would expect from, from the late twenties, but, um, you know, it, it really does, uh, lay bare, I think, you know, how this music was sort of evolved out of, you know, the, um, uh, an oral tradition, a playing tradition, um, that sort of, you know, merged gospel music, um, sort of Eastern Tennessee, Appalachian, um, like, you know, Irish folk music originally. It's basically at the crossroads of fearing God and drinking a lot. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and then dying pretty from much drinking right. a lot. Uh, <laughs> or, well, or dying from being in the coal mines for too long. Yeah. yeah. Um, one of those. So. No, no, yeah, no so, I mean, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to say it. I was going to bring that up as well, that it kind of came from, you know, a, a rich tradition of storytelling and then, you know, basically kind of crossed over and Hank Williams being the, the sort of epicenter of that. But it's also a music, I think, much like the blues, um, maybe even jazz to some degree, and, and certainly sort of raw punk rock, where people are always trying to get back to the essence. You know, it's not a... It sort of gets built up and, and commercialized and, and sold, and then you have this kind of revolt within, you know, uh, folk music or country music where, you know, American music, you can say it's very American, obviously, where they kind of revolt and strip it back down again. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's kind of... So, so we're sort of picking up, I guess, where, roughly speaking, uh, country went electric for the first time, too, right? Which is like the 1950s. <clears throat> I mean, that's sort of when you have this, like, you know, there's honky-tonk and, uh, like, it's got a sort of boogie, like, it's listened to on the radio pretty widely. Yeah. Country, like, it's now starting to appear in movies with country western, stuff like that, right? I mean, I think what we're going to talk about today is really kind of the end of that, the, the golden era, into right. exactly that. So sort of rock and roll has hit the scene, even with people that kind of had what you would call country and Western uh, careers, like Elvis and, and Jerry, Jeff, Jerry uh, Lou, yeah, Lee Lewis. Lewis. Yeah, thank you. Um, and even Johnny Cash. Lewis Katz is a tough name to come up with here. Yeah, yeah really, on the brother pod. Um, and then into what sort of got kind of bloated and, and the folks that kind of took it back to the roots. So... I know we had some uh, some funny tales of some of the, the guys that influenced these guys, but mainly what, what I'd like to talk about post that is is kind of the, the folks that broke off and, and brought what we would consider sort of outlaw country and then into yeah, the other well, genres. Tell, tell us a story about that split because that's, you know, I didn't, I didn't really know that story and I don't well, know if Christian's it's, is, is it's, familiar. It's really, you know, it, it's funny. You kind of hear that term all the time, outlaw country, or you hear it now probably more, you know, more in, in, than you did then. Um, it was really just kind of the the change in culture butting heads with that Nashville scene. So to your earlier point, you know, country had become main, you know, or mainstream enough and, you know, it become, had its own radio programs, had, had sort of come into the, the consciousness of, of American music and, and become American music. And there was a very strict sort of conservatism to it. And, and that, it, it reminds me a lot of Motown, actually. And it reminds me of when, like, Marvin Gaye and uh, Stevie Wonder started to buy back the rights to their own music and do their own thing. And it, it's actually around basically the same period. So you have the late 60s and you have Chet Atkins, who's, who's a very famous 
um, sessions musician, producer, and he's working for RCA Records, and, and he owns the rights, and, and you know, RCA, that is, owns the rights to many of these kind of young emerging songwriters. And these songwriters started to kind of resent that and, and want to kind of break off and do their own thing. And, yeah, and there the were two, sorry, pretty onerous contracts back yeah, in the day. Yeah, and this and it was like a universally renowned. I mean, it was it's called the Nashville Sound, right? And that's yeah. what that's what Atkins had exactly produced. like Motown. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. it's an empire. It's I mean, it was a hugely lucrative one too. I would imagine. But yeah, so. yeah. I actually I'd never really drawn the dotted line, and it, it's so right in my face and so obvious. I can't believe it never thought of this before but you're right it's you know it's Marvin Gaye uh doing what's going on when everybody's like no that's not what we do here exactly right he's like yeah I'll take it for a spin see how it goes yeah well and you can really trace it back to it it's kind of funny you know a lot of times I look at like music history or I kind of you know get obsessed with a uh, genre of music and I think like that can't be it right you know it's got to be more complicated more players you know there's got to be more going on and in reality, there was really two guys that kind of started this whole scene, and it's, it's Willie Nelson and, and Waylon Jennings. And, you know, we'll start with Willie, who was a pretty successful songwriter. I mean, he wrote Crazy for Patsy Cline. He wrote Hello Walls. Um, you know, he was a guy who was, you know, probably making money and had a good career, but didn't want to sit on the sidelines and just write songs for other people. Um, he also was a guy that was from Texas, and, and I think like a lot of people who grow up in the South or grow up in... Um, certain areas that have much stronger personalities than the areas we grew up in that, you know, they're drawn back to those places. And so in between these kind of stints, he would tour um, a lot of the Southwest and tour Texas. And he started to, this is, mind you, like, so we're talking like sort of 67, 68. Um, there's obviously some changes going on in the country. And uh, Austin, Texas was a place he played frequently. And he started to really dig the fact that, you know, there was people with long hair at his shows, and there was, um, you know, maybe a little smell in the air, something that uh, he liked to partake Jesus. in uh, every once in a while. And, um, you know, a, this he, is a man who claims to have smoked a joint on the roof of the White House, by yeah, the way. Right. And he started to really resent the fact that he had to go back and sort of dress a certain way and, and, and you know, not be able to play his songs. And now, Willie is, you know, I'm a huge Willie Nelson fan. I understand that people, you know, his voice is a little bit weak. He's, um, Obviously not a rock star in looks, but, uh, you know, a very charismatic guy in his own way. But they weren't going to push a Willie Nelson, and I think he knew that. And um, right away, he, he, you know, put out an album in, I want to say it was 71, called Yesterday's Wine. And he was recording his own albums as well. They just weren't getting promoted. And RCA was like, what the F is this? You know, and it was basically one of his first concept albums, and it was about a you know, a, a troubled singer-songwriter who was drinking too much. And and it was an album that really got him in hot water with them. And, and he ended up buying his his contract and saying, screw this, I'm moving to, to Texas. And around the same time, Waylon Jennings, who, you know, many of us, or at least I grew up with as the, as the guy on Dukes of Hazard singing the theme song, um, you know, who was basically a musical prodigy. I mean, Waylon Jennings is, is really one of the most, you know, amazing figures in this whole scene. This guy was, you know, a high school dropout, uh, sort of pickup scratch guitar player, bass player, um, was DJing in Lubbock, Texas at the age of, of 16, actually was apparently like one of the sort of most, you know, renowned DJs around and befriended Billy, um, Buddy Holly. Buddy Holly. The and, uh, of his time. Yeah, yeah, and started playing bass for him. 
And so Buddy Holly had him as a bass player, and he, you know, this is the, the famous story, is he's the one who uh, traded his seat to the Big Bopper when the plane went down. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and so Waylon then moved to Arizona and was, you know, doing more DJ work. And it was uh, Bobby Bear <clears throat> who found Waylon. You know, he also wrote his own songs and played in a band called the Waylon, sort of a rockabilly band, and was like, this guy's voice. I mean, you just can't beat Waylon Jennings' voice, which we all know. And brought him also to Chet Atkins. And so Waylon then started doing the same thing Willie was doing, where he was recording and writing. Unlike Willie, who, you know, has always seemed like the kind of guy you'd want to, like, smoke a joint with and hug, um, Waylon, I think, is a little more of a <laughs> punch you in the face <laughs> if you uh, yeah. fuck with him. And, uh, you know, he basically was like, you, you know, <laughs> one of his quotes was like, I'm a nice guy until you fuck with my music. And... Um, and that's what they did. You know, he was under a shit contract. And, Which doesn't uh, even seem that believable, actually. Like, I'm not sure he believable. was that nice a guy, but yeah. And, um, you know, and, and so he saw Willie go down to, to Austin, and, and around the same time, you know, they were befriending guys like Chris Christofferson and um, Guy Clark and, and, you know, Jerry Jeff Walker and, and all this crew. Sorry, go ahead. So, yeah, just, I mean, one, one thing I think is interesting is, like, unlike, uh, I mean, if you look at punk, which was, like, for the most part, a generation of kids who grew up listening to one thing, and then from the day that they started making music, they were making something, you know, they were doing something kind of revolutionary from the age of 17, 18. What's interesting about this is that you have guys who are, like, for all intents and purposes, you know, relatively established artists in their own field oh, within yep. within the confines of this, you know, within this sort of, um, this paradigm of, of you know the, the Nashville sound and the industry, and it was it was really you know their artistic leadership mid career, and they were like you know what this can be better, this can be different, and they they walked away from it, which is kind of fat. I mean that's yeah, like when you've already tasted success, like, it's a hard thing to do. Well, it's, and it was a cool, matter of being in an area where you, it was almost like reform school for them, right? I mean these guys were starting to you know they wanted to grow a beard, they wanted to have long hair, they were smoking weed, they're they were drinking against the establishment, yeah, yeah. you know, well, and they were kind of like why are we why do I have to wear this you know, suit and this nudie tie. Like I, well, and I guess it's worse, or it's worth it's worth pointing out that you know, it, like, although my sort of idyllic history of country music sort of feels like it's very removed from you know the events and like the timeline of the 20th century in some ways. Um, you know, this is concurrent with with Vietnam and with you know a lot of social changes in yeah, this country. Yeah, you're talking that, that late were, 70s. I mean, late 60s. Sorry, exactly. late 60s, early I mean, 70s. Yeah. Protest music is at its pinnacle. Um, and I also think that you know, I mean, it, it, I go back and you know, applaud your your uh, analysis with the uh, Motown thing. But the other, uh, it's funny. The more you talk about Willie Nelson, the more also I realize that it. Uh, covers the same sort of arc, the same sort of uh, personal arc as, as someone like George Carlin, who was a you know a uh, successful co- uh, comedian who was on the Tonight Show frequently, short hair, buttoned up, doing you know family friendly stuff, and and then took a look around and said, "Fuck it, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna follow and my, my thing." Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, so it really was. The, it seems like there was just this this spark in the in the late. I mean, you know, whether it was Woodstock or whatever. I mean, it's like there it was, was obviously that. a late it, it really 60s was. spark. And yeah. a lot of it was really Willie just getting out of Nashville because he couldn't he couldn't get the attention or sort of the the backing that he wanted. But he he's he's kind of like you know, and having just watched the Grateful Dead documentary myself. He was a little bit like that. He was a big, I mean, he loved to be on the road. He loved to tour and he loved to play. And, and if you've ever seen Willie, I mean, he, he had a tight band. And, and reading about him, you hear that other musicians who were solid musicians were like, hey, I, I could be a little looser around this guy. I could improvise more. I could do, you know, what I really wanted to do as a musician. 
And then, you know, that brings us to sort of Austin, and there was a festival in, in 1972 in Dripping Springs that had, you know, some of the, the same sort of 60s bands that we're talking about, so some of the psychedelic rock bands, but it also featured Willie, Waylon, and Chris Christopherson, and, um, who were all friends. And, you know, it just sort of changed their entire, their entire view of everything. All of a sudden, you had rednecks, hippies, um, you know, a, a mixture of both, all sort of jamming out to the, their own music and, and clubs like, you know, even the Broken Spoke, where Christian was recently. I, I was in about Austin. to say you might have you might have been describing Austin two months ago <laughs> yeah. when I was there. Like that's not. Yeah, <laughs> and, I, don't, um, I don't know that it's changed all that much. A famous club, the Armadillo World Headquarters, which is also oh, yeah. uh, you know famously featured on the the cover of London Calling. Um, it's uh, you know it became this kind of sort of cross section of of music. And, you know, the next step for that was that these guys bought back their rights. And, and again, I'll give you another Waylon Jennings story that was pretty funny. And, you know, Willie kind of just, he had money because he had made some money off of, of his writing rights. And, and Waylon was really struggling at the time. And it came down to $25,000, which I'm sure, you know, at, at the time seemed like a, a lot in that world. And, uh, you know, they just sat there for, you know, I guess 20 minutes, you know, him and Chet Atkins and the lawyers and uh, Waylon finally got up and said, I'm taking a piss and walked away. And the lawyer was like nudging him, like, do not leave this room, you know, da, da, da. and he's like, you know, fuck it, I'm taking a piss. And Chet Atkins took that as like, this guy's walking out on me. Um, and they paid him the $25, so it was $25,000. So he always called it the $25,000 <laughs> piss that I took on uh, RCA Records. And funny enough, RCA Records... Uh, came back and gave him like a complete rights to everything and he ended up signing with them. But the other piece of this that I, I, I thought was, was pretty cool, so Willie and, and Waylon get down to Austin. Um, there's a, you know, a lot of other artists around there. So there's, you know, your Towns Van Zandt, your Guy Clarks, your Billy Joe Schaefer's. It's a really communal scene. I mean, we just did a pod on grunge and very similarly to grunge, like these guys played each other's songs. They, you know, promoted each other. They had each other up on stage. They jammed with each other. Um, and, you know, there was a guy, Doug Somm, who when I, I think you know f- as well from the yeah. Sir Douglas Quintent, which was actually a, a San Francisco psychedelic band um, that had a hit in the 60s, who was a, an Austin, Texas guy who came back and was sort of a long-haired cowboy like Willie was doing country music again. And Atlantic Records at the time said, like, there's something really cool going on there. I'm not, we're not quite, we have no country artists and we have no idea what the hell to do. And they ended up hiring Willie and Doug Somm, but really Doug Somm is their A&R guys. And that's how, you know, all these guys sort of got, you know, swept up and got record contracts. And uh, it was really Doug Somm was kind of the man on the street. And later on, we'll talk about Uncle Tupin a little much further in this thing you know, was, was featured on their albums as well. It's just kind, it's kind of interesting cool. that they were also, I mean, you know, they basically left because they wanted to own the rights to their music, but once they owned the rights to their music, they couldn't have been more generous in terms of encouraging people to play it on stage, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, they were, you know, handing out their songs left, right, and center to, and hoping that their friends would cover them, so. Yeah, no, and I mean, if you look at sort of the the albums that really... It was really a period from 1971 to 1975, and, and you know, Willie was famous for the the sort of uh, concept albums like, you know, Phases and Stages, Redhead Stranger, Yesterday's Wine, and then uh, Waylon um, had Lonesome, Honoree, and Mean, and Honky Tonk Heroes. Honky Tonk Heroes is actually a remake of a Joe Schaefer, Billy Joe Schaefer album, which was a, you know, well-known, well-respected uh, singer-songwriter in Austin, and he really just did all of his songs. I mean, he adds a he couple other He covered the ones. whole album. Yeah, yeah, basically. I mean, he adds a couple other songs. Um, and But the big point was really in 75 when both Willie and Waylon had hits. 
so hits in the Nashville, in the country western, and in popular culture. And for uh, Waylon, it was you know, are we are you sure Hank's done it this way? Off dreaming my dreams, and for Willie, it was blue eyes crying in the rain, off of uh, redhead stranger, and that really sort of established this sound and this this kind of new, looser, kind of funkier, long haired, bearded, bearded country sound, and and you know a lot of people call it you know, outlaw originally, I don't think they called themselves anything, but songwriters and guys who want to do their own things. Um, Waylon eventually put out an album called wanted outlaws, which is why with Willie, which is what came up with the name, but the, the whole sort of highway men with Johnny cash and Merle and all those guys was much later. That was actually the eighties. Mm-hmm. It was really this early seventies, yeah. but there are I tales think- of people like Merle Haggard coming to Austin and, and, Folks like Willie saying, like, it was a place that they could actually loosen up a little bit. You know, they were mm-hmm. they were still confined by this kind of Nashville scene. Let's go to Luke and Buck, Texas. Um, but, uh, you know, the one thing I was going to add in terms of, you know, uh, Willie Nelson's rise and, and, you know, sort of peak popularity for him was early 80s. But, um, you know, I, and I'm not sure if you came across this, but he was also Ronald Reagan's favorite performer. And so when Reagan came into office and Reagan was very popular and finding, you know, little bits and pieces out about this. Um, he, uh, Willie, he would frequently have Willie Nelson perform and, uh, that gave him an additional kind of boost and appreciate, you know, like, a uh, you know, uh, uh, sort of a pass on people who might not necessarily be like, well, that guy's got long hair and a beard, you know, he, he made, um, you know, the sort of Willie Nelson palatable for conservatives too. Yeah, and I mean, he went on obviously to not pay the IRS, but then also to do things like farm aid, and you know, he's a pretty yeah. pretty interesting guy. And then I think Whalen was sort of the badass of the scene and the guy who could be a rock star. And, and I think in the next segment, you know, we'll take a break here in a minute, unless you guys have more to add. We can talk about how these guys sort of influenced that that country rock world that kind of came about in the '70s and '80s as well. Awesome. Let's take cool. a quick break. Hank really do it this way 
Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother pod. We're talking about country today, and, um, you know, we just talked about some of the the outlaw country stars, or mainly just Willie and, and Waylon, and how they kind of took, you know, singer-songwriters from Texas and, and other areas and brought them to the forefront, but also added a bit of uh, rock and roll and a bit of a looseness to country music in the early 70s, which obviously sort of reverberated into the, the California sound that I'm going to turn this over to, to Wyndham to discuss about. So it was just so much a part of his childhood. So uh, the Laurel yeah, Canyon, totally. I get, Jackson Browns, Ronstead World. I really do. I, I, Christian and I were at Dodger Stadium last year, and I said the greatest thing about Dodger Stadium is you walk out of Dodger Stadium at dusk, and it always looks like an Eagles album cover. <laughs> um, the Laurel Canyon sound was, you know, I mean, was the, the sort of Graham Parsons is um, in large part uh, – you know, sort of credited with marrying country and rock and, and having and sort of setting the uh, definitive uh, sort of the blueprint for that 70s, uh, what has become known as the Laurel Canyon sound because they all lived in Laurel Canyon in Los Angeles. Um, people like Jackson Brown, uh, who lived at, actually at this point in Echo Park, uh, I believe, um, and his upstairs neighbors were the Eagles, uh, Glenn Fry and Don Henley who were, at that point, the uh, part of the backing band for Linda Ronstadt. Um, Linda Ronstadt was touring, and Glenn Fry and Don Henley were writing more and more songs for themselves and decided to start a band, and Linda Ronstadt very graciously um, allowed them to uh, leave the tour and start the Eagles before uh, their... their uh, professional obligations had been completed so she's um you know one of the one of the people who is really credited for um helping you know launch that band and not and not uh, obstructing uh their progress forward um there's a you know at, at one point in the in the sort of mid-70s there was a lot of country tinge to the rock and roll and to the mainstream radio uh hits of the day i mean you get bands like poco and pure prairie league um, the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. Um, Would you put America these, in that same kind yeah, of Yeah, America, England, Dan and John Ford Coley, um, all sorts Alabama. of people. And Alabama was more of a country band, and it's hard to even, you know, it's hard to make that distinction, but Alabama was coming from the Nashville side and crossing over a little, whereas so these guys were coming from the rock side. But, okay, yeah, and yeah. You, and to, to add a third layer of confusion, perhaps, to this, you've also got the Southern rock guys, um, yeah. you know, Skinner and the Almond Brothers, who were bringing, you know, country-tinged roots music because of where they were from, but not necessarily because of the popularity of country at that right. time. Well, they were they were the people who were bringing it because it was it was innate in their there, existence. Yeah. These Marshall people, Tucker, yeah. You know, these people I'm talking about, the sort of, uh, you know, We're, Jackson Brown, Poco, you know, Randy Meisner right. uh, people, they are not... Uh, They're reacting are, to the Eagles. These are people or, who like country, but didn't grow up necessarily in the God and, you know... In uh, the Bible fearing. Belt South. Yeah, yeah there was, uh, you know, I mean, Graham Parsons is a Harvard guy. Um in, right, and Chris uh, Christopherson was a, a Pomona. Yeah, exactly. I think it does kind of draw a line in the sand, though. I mean, I think I read something interesting earlier that was, like, you know, kind of talking about, like, why wouldn't... So you obviously have, like, country stars, right? And, and we'll talk about that in a minute. And then you have sort of people that just weren't comfortable in the confines of, of Nashville. And then you have kind of country rock, right? Um, but I think it really depends on, like, why wouldn't a Chris Christopherson or a... 
Guy Clark or Towns Van Zandt be just sort of alternative country, it's because they mm-hmm. really come from that sort of country world, whether, you know, they, they started trying to write songs in Nashville or they, you know, kind They're of... Southern and they grew up on... Yeah, one thing, they grew when, up on... And it makes a huge difference. It's true. When Jerry lived in Austin, it was really funny. I mean, I really had never spent any time in Texas before. And so he came and picked me up at the airport and, you know, he was all keen on, you know, listening to country all of a sudden. And I hadn't really seen this part of him, but, you know, um, we were in a uh, car, he another friend of his, you know, kind of punk rock guy, you know, long, uh, was in the car and, and like every song that came on, Jerry was introducing it to me. And this kid was singing along like, because this was the Beatles and the Stones for people in Texas, Waylon and Willie, and Johnny Cash and, and that kind of thing was played right alongside the Beatles, Stones, and the Who. Well, it wasn't there well, was no Jeremy, differentiation. Jeremy had a yeah had a good uh, point when we watched this this documentary, Heartworn Highways, which really does sort of it's a it, it's it's not so much interviews um, that are sort of cohesively that were all filmed by one person. It's a lot of home footage and that sort of thing, and it's um, uh, it's Towns Van Zant and a young Steve Earle. Um, uh, an insane David Allen Coe playing at a prison <laughs> in a um, in something that looks like the uh, white polyester uh, jumpsuit from uh, yeah. Saturday Night. If, if David um, Bowie was like uh, in a men's prison with uh, born in Texas, it would have been in the outfit that he was wearing. Yeah, that guy literally is an he's just an alien. There's no other explanation for it. But um, you know, when, when we watched that, I mean, uh, I mean, Jeremy and I had, had never seen it or, or actually heard of it. Um, and uh, and you went back to some of your buddies from Austin yeah. and, and sort of asked them about it, and they said, "Yeah, holy shit, this is our last waltz." It's like yeah, you know, there is say, a it was different sort of like watching the wall stoned or something. Yeah, for them. Like, yeah. yeah. yeah like it's that. like there's a there's a slightly different you know. Like you haven't seen um, that. <laughs> You know, if you if you come from certain parts of Texas or if you come from certain parts of the southeast, it's like you, you just you grow up with a slightly different musical vocabulary. Like right. the stuff that you are blooded on from an early age is, is a little different. And so, you know, that necessarily influences what you're what you're going to listen to or or if you're a musician, what you're going to play, um, you know. Hard to make the case that Neil Young grew up listening to country music. The guy's Canadian. Although Western Canada has huge country music territory. I have, I, uh, that is actually uh, massive. Uh, country western and you know uh, Alberta is almost I mean he's from Winnipeg but Alberta is essentially the Texas of Canada it's it's big it's oil rich and they like rodeo and country music it's it's really um, it's really southern and it's um, it's probably a little lighter on the religion but uh, otherwise it's it's fairly comparable to the to the US to the American South Um, one of the interesting uh, Oh, sorry. I was uh, didn't mean to cut you off there, but no, you didn't. Go ahead. Okay. Um, no, what I was going to say one of the uh, one of the interesting thing. I think Richard Linklater does a great job of of capturing this and his characters, and uh, you know, largely in Days Confused and and uh, Everybody Wants Some. Is that these are you know, it's not unusual for someone from Texas to to love sports, the Sex Pistols, and you know, uh, Randy Travis. It's you know. Yeah. It's, it's not a, they're not as much divorced from me. They're not, you know, for us, this was an exotic. Well, there's uh, not as much dive. sort of stigma well, about, I mean, socially, you know, it's like you, you sort of, I mean, it's, it's the classic line that's like, 
you ask anybody under the age of 20 who grows up in like an East Coast in a suburb or a city, like, you know, what kind of music do you like? Oh, everything but country is like such a common refrain. I hate yeah, that. Absolutely. You know, it's like, yep. you know, that's just such a throwaway. Like, and, you know, I, I think that that was also partly a reaction to what we'll talk about in a minute or what I'll talk about in a minute, which is like that sort of 90s big, you know, FM country pop stuff. But like, um, but yeah, but, but to your point, I mean, I think that these things blend together. Um, really comfortably for, for mm-hmm. people in, in well, Texas. And it's funny, well, that takes us to our next sort of, uh, our next note here in, in the outline, which is that, you know, there was actually a merging of country and punk in the late 80s, mid to late 80s. Um, they call it cow punk. And, um, you is know, that like the, of, I, like the gun club has tinges of that and like, totally. you know, even yep. violent femmes have a little bit of that. They were too. all slash records. It was all on slash. Yeah, uh, it was a very... X, the, the Blasters, um, bands like the Rank kinda, and File, <laughs> Rank and File, which was uh, Alejandro Escovedo's band, uh, a, a Texan, but um, was performing, I believe, out of San Francisco. Had sort it of was, a, yeah. uh, what they call a cow punk. Jason and the Scorchers. Um, even uh, you know, even what's her name, the Street Cats, a little bit had that. I mean, they obviously had that rockabilly sound, but they brought brought it back in the late eighties. Yeah, well. but they did it. They had a punk rock attitude. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yep. And it was that was really what it was. They were sort of, you know, that yeah. I never really so I did Waylon. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I mean, you, you had kind of, and I think that that again, like I, I look at it a, a lot like punk and blues in the sense that you sort of had, you know, the the seventy early seventies was sort of you know uh, scaling down and getting back to sort of a real roots rock kind of, uh, um, you know sort of straight ahead sound and then you had that sort of adopted by the the California Laurel Canyon scene but it, I don't want to say posers but these were guys that you know were dipping their toe in a sound as opposed to kind of really living it it's cultural and, appropriation yeah no, it's and, and, and it's, it was it's, huge and then you know and very popular um, and then you also had Nashville just churning out you know kind of again another another round of especially in the 80s and then we'll talk about the 90s as well so I think those punk bands were like kind of a they were influenced by the rawness of that that early rockabilly sound well, or that that early sort of um, well, one thing I, one thing I'm gonna say and you will never hear these words out of my mouth ever again before or uh, uh, subsequent to this is uh, in defense of Don Henley, uh, he is from Texas. You know, I mean, he mm-hmm. did grow. He came by this very naturally. But people like you know, and Grant Parsons is from Florida. But um, you know, they were basically you know, I would say the the Laurel Canyon um, incorporation of country is is almost akin to the the British incorporation of blues. It was uh, these people were genuinely fans. Uh, yeah. They didn't necessarily come by it uh, naturally. Yeah, um, and I mean, so Chris Christopherson, where, where was John Denver from? Uh, John Denver was, where was he from? California, maybe. Yeah, I thought so. Um, so or, I mean, but that, that's a, sort he of was what actually I was, an Air Force brat. So I think he moved around. He was he moved around a lot. I think he was in Europe when he started writing. Yeah, he. I think he actually. And Chris Christopherson's always been a guy that you know, and, and you know that that was in that scene though from the beginning. So he was another one that, you know, was friends with Johnny Cash and, and um, obviously friends with Willie and Waylon and, and, and a lot of those guys. I mean, he's just a damn good songwriter, too. Yeah. And uh, and then he's really like one of the, I mean, not to go off on a Chris Christopherson piece, he's like a re- the true renaissance man. I mean, he's a good looking guy, 
was a, a good actor. You know, famous actor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> was like a great songwriter. Kind of always played the cool, you know, he always was on the cool side of, of scenes, you know. It wasn't like he, uh, I'm sure he had some slips here and there, but ended up always with the right people. Rhodes Scholar, married to Rita Coolidge at one point, which was pretty cool. You know, I mean, it yeah. was, uh, you know, there was, there, everything about that guy was cool. Yeah, and he was a little. I mean, he he was a little less Hollywood. Mm-hmm. He was kind of like the uh, the Hollywood guy of today that that doesn't live in Hollywood, you know. Yeah, um, like the, or like a so that, Hopper type. With that, should we? Uh, as, now that we've we've successfully drawn the line from from country music to Dennis Hopper, um, should we uh, should we take a quick break and come back? Sure. Yeah, right. sounds good. Well, it did not say much, but one year later, he'd ask her to be his wife. And the lights of L.A. County, they look like diamonds in the sky. When you're driving through the hours with an old friend at your side. One year later, I left you. Well, it did not say much, but it was a beauty of a cold black 45. And the lights of L.A. County, they look like diamonds in the sky. When you're driving through the hours with an old friend at your side. So I drove on. Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Today we are talking country. And, um, you know, as always, I'm going to uh, grab the uh, grab the mic and, and run this thing back into the mid-70s to AM radio and uh, talk about, you know, how the sort of external forces of things, I mean, the popularity of country uh, gave rise to, you know, country and other, um, you know, entertainment uh, segments and uh, you know Hee Haw was a nationally syndicated show Nashville by Robert Altman's Nashville which is a great film um, you know sort of gave you know sort of played into the the popularity and uh, mainstreaming of, of country music and and then you know sort of all the way down into Urban Cowboy which was an early 80s film starring John Travolta fresh off of his um, you know, fresh off of his Saturday Night Fever Grease run, um, that it was also extremely popular. And, you know, there was a lot of crossover in this period, like 75 to, eight, you know, early, like 83 probably, um, you know, when you would hear, um, you know, the Commodores or Lionel Richie, you know, right alongside of Kenny Rogers, Charlie Daniels Band, Eddie Rabbit, um, you know, ABBA, Glenn Campbell, Led Zeppelin, was this the Dolly rhinestone Parton. cowboy days? Yeah, this is when it all sort of came together. Rhinestone cowboy, Southern Nights, which was a um, um, Alan Toussaint song that Glenn Campbell popularized. You know, uh, Glenn Campbell had that run of great Jimmy Webb songs like uh, Wichita Lineman, and by the time it's I get like, to Phoenix, it's such a great song, by the way. It, it might be going on, it might be going on a certain list, um, <laughs> but uh, and you know the Crystal Gale and Juice Newton, and but these were like very mainstream. 
Uh, and this is sort of, I think, what the launching pad was for the, the sort of bloat that came later, the sort of overproduced, oversheened um, country music of the, of the mid to late 80s and 90s. Yeah, um, and that's... But there was you... a period when, when, you know, country had a, a seat right at the, t- at the table with, you know, what we would think of now as, as pop music and classic rock. Let's talk late 80s, early 90s, glut, and then also talk about kind of a, 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 I think Christian, uh, what you said earlier really rings true to me, and it was something that I had to kind of go back and and discover. It was like the anything but country (laughs) line, Um, (laughs) and I... uh, yeah, I, I, well, I certainly felt like that for most of my life. And, you know, you had, and it's because of, you know, people like Travis Tritt. I'm, I'm going to go into and, and Garth Brooks and, and then kind of the, the mega stars. And, and I'll let you talk a little bit about those. And then right before we, we segue into the next segment, I do want to talk about some guys that weren't doing that, that I had to go back and discover. But why don't we talk about kind of the, 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 the country that made us hate country? Yeah, I mean, I think I sort of my my life uh, being born in 1988 sort of perfectly uh, aligns with the timeline of this sort of this this la- this latest era of it. Um, uh, and you know, I think that a, a big part of it, actually, interestingly, um, going back and and sort of reading about this, was the fact that you know you you suddenly had um, a massive expansion in the mid 80s of uh, the FCC sort of ordered a massive expansion of FM radio, which meant that you had radio that was m- moving you know from. Uh, concentrated urban areas to very rural areas. Um, and, and that sort of meant that there was also a stylistic change in terms of the types of, um, uh, the types of music that was actually being played. So you had, you know, these, these pretty big stars who were sort of, who emerged overnight because suddenly, you know, a much larger audience was, was sort of included on the radio grid. Um, and, you know, I think that the, the clear standout in, in terms of star power here has got to be Garth Brooks. I mean, that guy is one of the best-selling American artists ever. Um, I mean, he's the certified RIAA, certified him at like 130 times platinum or something like that. Um, and we're talking, you know, album sales, not single sales. Um, so, I mean, he is truly a, a – and, you know, he is – it, when we when we were you know talking about greatest American band, obviously we we ruled out in criteria the the solo artist, but I mean you know we did say an automatic qualifier here is anybody who can fill a stadium, you know not an arena but an eighty thousand person stadium, and he does it on a regular basis. Um, but you know in the uh, it, sort of simultaneous to, to Garth Brooks, you also had um, you know guys like Alan Jackson, Travis Tritt, whose mullets are just fucking insane <laughs> so if you like you have to google like Billy, you have uh, to look Ray this Cyrus. stuff up Cyrus. yeah oh don't break my heart my achy breaky heart yeah don't cut his mullet off either i guess but um and then like you know brooks and dunn um toby keith obviously sort of stayed around for you know and, and i think he's he's uh sort of late 90s and and 2000s um, black yeah and then well you've got you know, and then their sort of female counterparts um, were, were, you know, like uh, in the in the nineties. I guess it was nineties, or was it early two thousands? You had like Leanne Rimes, who was huge, um, but you know, Faith, certainly Faith um, Hill, Hill, Trisha Yearwood, Shania Twain, Patty Loveless, um, Martina McBride. These are actually my mom's favorite musicians ever. So, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, they, you know, they it, basically you had similar. It was almost a throwback to the sort of Nashville convention, right? Um, the sort of the the level of like uh, uh, conformity that that existed uh, back in the nineteen fifties and sixties, where very formulaic. You know, 
Well, yeah, I think the, the producers wrested control back from the artists and started, and the song, you know, sort of the songwriter producer machine, um, you know, really had it had its hand on every move that these people would make. It was that they were very controlled, and and you know, I mean, they were very profitable, they were very um, popular. But I Still do think are. that it was. <laughs> but it was, but guys, guys, it's just pop music. Like it's not, and yeah. I don't say that to say it's not country music. I mean, you know, there's there's a sort of strange. Um, I, I always, I'm always astonished by like the negativity that's expressed toward this type of country, and yet people will happily throw on the Billboard Top 40, and you know, listen, or, you know, whether it's the Katy Perry or, or the whatever, it's like it's it, it's fine. It's just it's well, just and, pop and music with a back twang. Back to our earlier point, <laughs> like I it's think not we, a greater we, sin, you know. You know, we all grew up on on the coast and and Wyndham on both, and Christian and I certainly on the East Coast. I think that's the big difference because you know I, one of my dearest friends in the world and. and Texas, um, you know, I remember his wife just like, you know, just as I drive my kids to school and I, I, I do just that, I pop on the pop radio because that's what they want to hear and it is what it is, you know, yeah. and, and uh, you know, she popped on the Nashville state, or it's not even Nashville, the, the country pop radio station and it was like, it was just as bubblegum. She's like, I don't really like it, you know, but it's like, it's bubblegum pop, pop to me, you know, and, and yeah, uh, well, and, and just like the great, you know, just like the pop of the day, there's some, there's, a, you know, every once in a while there's a, there's a real gem there, um, um, that's just a total standout. And by the yeah. way, Garth Brooks has some great fucking he songs. Like, <laughs> yeah. um, I wrote him off for many years, and I've gone back and been like. But wow, the funny thing, and, and this is this that is many people kind of can't be wrong. I'm, I'm like, I'm convinced of that. You know what I mean? It's like, it's, it's. If nothing else, it's, it's like, it's pleasant simplicity in the type of music. You know, the, the chord progressions, the storytelling is good. It's, it's evocative. You know, um, but the, and the, 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 the very telling of, of, you know, the sort of segregation of these types of music, the, the sort of ghettoization of radio and these kinds of music, is that I don't believe I knew a Garth Brooks song. Um, during his heyday, I, I later found out that Friends in Low Places was Garth Brooks. But like during that time in the mid to, I mean the mid nineties, you know, I live in New York City. There is I have zero exposure to that music. Yeah, yeah, and I mean I, you know, and the only reason I guess I did was because like this, my mom listened to it in the car and really liked it, and you know, yeah. it's sort of. Uh, but but I guess the the fact that the you know the that it, the choice was available. I mean, it was clearly being pretty widely consumed. Um, by by somebody out there. So, oh yeah, um, by lots of somebody's, you know. And I mean, well, in in like every kind of uh, glutted, you know, huge kind of successful scene, there's there's kind of a, a counter scene. And I will I will pass on another Whalen quote because I think all at least my country roads lead back to him. And uh, he was talking about being at, at a country music awards fest and, and this guy behind him being like, Mr. Mr. Jennings, you're, you're like my God. And he turned around, it was Billy, Billy Ray Cyrus. And he, his quote was, God, I'd hate to see what that guy's devil looks like. It's <laughs> 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 pretty awesome. But you also had a group in the late 80s that I certainly underappreciated at the time and, and kind of got into from, you know, the, the segment we're going to talk about next, which is sort of the all-country world. There were guys like Dwight Yoakam, Lyle Lovett, um, Lucinda Williams, and, and, and a young Steve Earle. Steve Earle, who had been around the Texas scene for quite a while, playing bass for guys like Guy Clark and being very drunk at a dinner table, singing uh, beautifully on uh, heartworn, high, heartworn Highways. But um, these were people that you know critics kind of went after, like Lucinda Williams. Again, people were playing her songs, and, uh, young Lucinda Williams, and uh, you know she was getting hits off her songs, but wasn't necessarily getting the attention other than you know sort of the critical acclaim. 
And then you had guys like Lyle Lovett and Dwight Yoakam that the, the national scene really actually made a, a concerted effort to make famous. And I, you know, I, I always thought Dwight Yoakam was, you know, just another sort of uh, Travis, uh, Randy Travis, until I went back and listened to him, and he he truly was, you know, another guy that that really had that scale down. Was he an independent? So Buck uh, Owens. He was a California uh, guy. He was a Bakersfield he's guy. Bakersfield, Bakersfield, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Okay, but but Nashville tried to make him a, a country star at, in the late mm. 80s. Like, he's kind of an odd guy, the, right? And Lyle Lovett was a Texas guy who was a quirky kind of songwriter, weird-looking dude. And um, his first album, like Pontiac, which is actually a great album, again, was like really promoted and sort of pumped as country music. Quickly, that fell apart because both these guys were like nonconformist and they just were a little quirky compared to, to what else was going on. But, um, you know, it was just kind of an interesting scene. And Steve Earle actually at that time started to become like the guns and roses of the country world. I mean, albums like uh, Guitar Town and country, Copperhead Road, he was like mm-hmm. the next sort of Skinnerty you style. Love that song. Like I do, and uh, but I mean, when you say when, like he was geared yeah. to be in drugs and alcohol, kind of derailed him well, for he, a little while. Is, we'll come back to him, he, but he is what um, you know has uh, you know sort of uh, has now been um, is now sort of fully formed. Uh, Steve Earle was you know light years ahead of his time, but he would be. Zach Brown, or he would be, um, you know, that kind of crossover where there's, you know, it's like stadium country. I mean, he was Chris you know, Stapleton. For, yeah, Chris Stapleton. Yeah, um, that's what I was trying to think of. Yeah, Zach Brown. These guys that are like they're really pretty good rock and roll stars, and and you know, pretty, um, you know, good rock bands that you know are sort of a little bit country tinged. I mean, Steve Earle uh, is a country singer, but for all intents and purposes, I mean, he's a rock singer. No, he definitely worked. I mean, you know, had the Pogues backing him up, and you know, he had the full-on Steve Earle and the Dukes was a full-on rock band. Yeah. Um, Well, and you know, again, like there's also the interest. I mean, Steve Earle is a good sort of uh, platform to to discuss. I think you know the fact that culturally. Um, there is something sort of significant here that, like, Steve Earle, Johnny Cash, you have guys who are, like, and Willie Nelson, certainly, like, guys who are pretty, you know, super far left wing, right? Mm -hmm. Which doesn't necessarily conform very well with some of the, you know, social conservatism and, and, I mean, political conservatism of of the demographic that traditionally listens to countries, so, or, and, and from whence it came geographically. So, like, you know, I think that's a, that's sort of a an interesting conflict that that has often contributed, or I think, adds to the fact that these guys were were sort of you know the outlaws and the alternative scene, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's weird. Uh, you know, I mean, I can't ever think of Steve Earle without thinking of Steve Earle talking about Towns Van Zant, his idol, um, and you know, named his, um, you know, he. Uh, he named his son after Towns Van Zandt. Um, but I can't think of Towns Van Zandt, you know, who I think of as a, as a fairly, you know, stripped down, bare, you know, beautiful songwriter. But I think of him as a country guy because he's from Texas and he sings in a relatively country style. He's never, ever, you know, in record stores, was never labeled under country. He was always in the folk section. Which yeah. I always thought was strange. Well, there's there's kind of that, that other split and, and it's that heady kind of folk singer country. And, that really kind of harkens back, I think, to that Texas world where you had guys like Guy Clark and, and Towns Van Zant who, 
you know, they were, yeah, I think you're right, they were, they were really folk singers, but they had a, a draw and a natural sound because they were from that part of the country mm-hmm. and kind of came up on that sort of storytelling, twang, you know, and, and did a lot of covers, you know, I mean, they, well, they play a lot part of traditional. Of it's also just if you're playing solo and acoustic, like, you, you run the risk of getting consigned into the folk category in the record Yeah, but story. I think also like lyrically they were just, a, you know, ahead of, you know, they were just a, a bit headier than kind of like even the, you know, and I'm, I'm a big fan of Steve Earle's lyrics and people like that, but those guys, you know, fell into that Bob Dylan was, world a little bit. It was you much know, more of a cerebral like, kind yeah. of writing style. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, it, it takes a, it takes a, you know, as a, Dolly Parton once said, it, you know, costs a lot to look this cheap. I mean, it takes a, <laughs> um, takes a big brain to write a great simple country song, but these guys were writing much more literate stuff too. Well, let's um, let's take another quick break, and then we'll kind of talk about how our uh, our sort of love for indie rock world and, and punk rock ended up merging with these uh, these influences that we've been talking about from the seventies and eighties and sixties. Uh, Sounds good. Hey, pretty baby, are you ready for me? Yeah, it's your good rockin' daddy down from Tennessee. I'm just that off from Baffa San Antonio with a radio blasting in the bird dog gone. There's a speed trap with my head sound of town, but no local yoga gonna shut me down. Cause me and my boys got this rig on wound, and we'll come a thousand miles from a guitar chain. All right, so welcome back to the Brother Brother Pod, and uh, we're continuing our conversation on uh, country music, a, a genre that we all kind of love and came to at, at different points in our lives. And this is really how I came to, to country music, and, and I think um, maybe winning Christian a little bit too, uh, don't want to speak for them, but was through what was kind of in the early 90s through, you know, today really called alternative country or y'all alternative, as some would call it. And, uh, <laughs> You know, the band that, you know, there was a lot of kind of roots rock stuff that we mentioned earlier. So, I mean, Wynn was a huge X fan, and, and I certainly heard X early on, and, and they always had a bit of that, you know, rockabilly uh, twang to them. People like the Blasters, um, you know, we talked about sort of Lyle Lovett, Dwight Yoakam, Steve Earle, those guys coming into play. And then, you know, in, in the late 80s, early 90s, there was a, a lot of uh, kind of a cluster of Midwest bands, uh, I would say, and kind of started in, in Minneapolis uh, post-replacements, or actually during the end of the replacements, a band called the Jayhawks came about, who really put together kind of a great, you know, what I would actually call rock and roll, um, just sort of straight ahead rock, but, uh, you know, at the time was kind of lumped into this, this sort of roots rock revival or Americana sound. Um, and also early early days of, of bands like Soul Asylum, who also kind of leaned in on 
on that kind of uh, roots root sound. But the band to me that really kind of you know dropped an atom bomb on the uh, the rock and roll and, and country and indie rock and punk rock world was was out of Belleville, Illinois, um, a suburb of St. Louis, not Chicago. And that was uh, the threesome at the time, Uncle Tupelo. Um, you know, Jay Ferrara. Jeff that, Tweedy album was, the, that album was No Depression. Exactly, yeah. Sorry, No Depression. So No Depression came out in 90, prior, obviously, to, to Nirvana, Breaking Big, and, and uh, you know, was just a tour de force record that blended, you know, Carter family, traditional folk songs like No Depression, um, with bombastic, you know, almost Jay Maskus, Dinosaur Jr. style, um, you know, sort of punk rock songs, but with that had you know, intricate sort of finger plucking twang to them as well. And, and, you know, guys that grew up, you know, significantly middle, I mean, these were middle-class working class kids and they sang about it, you know, I mean, I'm sure they hadn't lived at the factory, but, uh, Jay Ferraro's voice certainly sounded like he had. And, um, and Jeff Tweedy added kind of a, you know, a, a great sound as well. And, and both would go on to, to become big things and Wilco and Sunvolt. Um, but it, it was, I think that album more than anything kind of blew up the scene. There was a fanzine named after it, No Depression. Um, it introduced kids to me, like me, that, that liked, you know, rock, that, um, you know, were, you didn't have the pretension of sort of the pavements of the world or the, the straight ahead kind of punk of like a mud honey or the, the fuzziness of the grunge scene. It kind of blended a lot of things like, you know, classic rock, country and punk all together into a, a real fist bumping you know, beer swilling combo. And, you know, out of that, I think kind of blew up just sort of this, this world of people like, you know, and some were more country like Robbie Folks, the bloodshot record scene. You had, you know, Ryan Adams starting whiskey town. You had, um, you know, bands like freak water, the bottle rockets, um, and, you know, and, and the Jayhawks obviously continuing as well. And then at the same time, um, you had people like Lucinda Williams and Steve Earle coming out with some of their best albums. So people that had kind of tried to make it in a more mainstream sense in that Nashville world were putting out their best stuff later, you know, kind of like Willie and Waylon doing their own thing. And you had a brand new audience of young people that were open to that. Gillian Welsh, all, uh, you know, I'll jump into that, that group as well. So, I mean, you know, talk about like all country of the 90s a little bit and, and your take on it, guys. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think, it, you know, there was that that moment where, you know, it seemed like everything was kind of going that way. I mean, you know, people like it was also partially, um, you know, the some of these acts that were that were, you know, playing a country tinge music and rock and roll um, weren't really southern. And so it had its own um, geography as well. I mean, obviously, Uncle Tupelo being from Illinois, but, um, you know, well, I, I, records I, being from Chicago. Exactly. That's what I mean. It was a sort of Midwestern push. I don't know where Richard Buckner's from, um, but, uh, you know, Alejandro. How Escobedo. popular, how popular did this get? I mean, it, like, it, you know, very, I don't think of Uncle yeah. Tupelo as getting like a ton of radio play ever. And no, they didn't. frankly, aside from Uncle Tupelo, Robbie Folks, I mean, obviously Wilco and Sunvolt, the, the offspring of Uncle Tupelo, but like, I can't name that many of the, you know, like to describe this as like a a, a scene or a movement like seems hard because basically it seems like it's Uncle Tupelo, and then no, the two the two bands that it, it was shot definitely off more than that. that. So I mean, you had a whole little like if you were talking about like you know, Uncle Tupelo broke up in '94, became Sunvolt and Wilco, and then you had you know the Bottle Rockets playing. You had bands like even early Will Oldman I, was kind of lumped into the scene. So Palace Music. 
Um, yeah. You know, all of those groups kind of got there was all, everybody seemed to be kind of going back to like a, a rootsy folk. Uh, sort of sound at that time, yeah. or not but everybody, but really there was specific Freddie to Johnson. But that was yeah. really specific to sort of Illinois, Missouri. Like, no, 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 no. This was the touring. This was, I mean, Wilco's last, sh- or Uncle Tubal's last show was at Tramps in New York, sold out. I mean, it was, it was definitely music. The, you no, got to think Christian back then. There. Yes, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. There, definitely. But there was also, I think, when you ask, you know, how big was this? Um, it was not filling arenas or stadiums, but at its pinnacle, you know, the Jayhawks could probably sell out Beacon Theater for a couple nights in a row. But that's and what Wilco's doing now. Exactly. Yeah. And you had saying. the rock so critic world. So it is at its world. pinnacle is what you're saying, yeah. You had the rock critic world go gaga. And, I mean, I think Wilco is a band that obviously has morphed into to a much bigger thing. I think Jay Farrar didn't. But you also had, it was like an alternative sound to what was going on, but you also had, you know, you got to think every writer was just like, Sort of creaming themselves over this this kind of new sound of roots rock, and it, you know, obviously new but not new, right? Sound that they were going back to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, and at the it same was, time, you had big established people, you know, or, or bigger established people. I mean, Car Wheels on the Gravel Road by Lucinda Williams, I Feel All Right and El Corazon by Steve Earle. I mean, these were like top ranked albums of the year, and I think we even talked about on the soundtracks. I mean, I look at this as rolling right into the Oh Brother, Where Art Thou you know, world of, of that music just kind of becoming more and more mainstream, more and more accepted. And the, the other piece was that it was a time where indie rock fans were traditionally, you were kind of more of that, like either pretentious kind of art rock or noise. It was like one or the other. There was sort of a middle ground of, of, you know, kind of like the classic rock you grew up on or the country song you loved when you were a kid or, you know, that type of thing and I actually, became I more acceptable. There, this was, a, you know, and I, I, wouldn't, I didn't really think about it until we were talking about it, but this is also a return to a sort of earnest singer-songwritery kind of thing. Um, that was, this was dead in the middle of, you know, a band like Pavement who, you know, couldn't see, you know, who... Who were very afraid to, to to admit ambition or seriousness, um, you know. People uh, people were you know sort of scoffed at for for you know expressing uh, feelings, which then probably led to emo eventually. But you know that said, you know this is a period when you know uh, a, a sort of earnest um, emotional the- set of of you know songwriting was was kind of scoffed at, and this this kind of broke through that. Um, yeah, definitely. That sort of irony barrier. You look at like Heartbreaker by Ryan Adams, which is, you know, sort of renowned, whether you like him or not, is renowned as his, you know, best album. That was his first solo album post Whiskey Town. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly that. It's sort of a, a you know, heart on the, your sleeve, barren kind of album. And then I think it did influence people like when you talk about emo, look at, think about Bright Eyes always had. I was about to say Saddle, and, Saddle yeah. Creek Records, I think, is the tail end of this, which yeah. actually, which is where I pick it up. So it's sort of, and those guys, you know, there were a ton of, a ton of pretty good, like, country bands and you know who signed to that Um, welcome aboard christian but i don't (laughs) but they were never popular (laughs) and that's that's but they were popular in the sense that um they they were popular uh to a point i mean they were um they had a very dedicated you know this is the this is the the, the the pixies you know when they were around and it's it's that kind of level of you know it's that influence and level of popularity. I mean, this was the the bands that you were going to see at you know your clubs every night and things like these that at the, that time. These were the touring acts that that you know once they were established, will come around you know once or twice a year and play to the exact same thousand people every year. I think Uncle Tupelo actually has a song about that. 
do they? Um, kind of, pretty much, or ten of them, yeah. Um, but and then I mean, but the but the old brother were at that thing that you mentioned. I think that's more traditional, like that gospel stuff and the bluegrass stuff has always been there. And I, that to me seems like a very unbroken or uninterrupted, like constant that that is separate from everything that we've talked about today. It's like you know, Alison Krauss was Alison Krauss doing Alison Krauss stuff before. Oh, brother, where art thou? Became you know was an album, right? And and that was I mean I I think if you're but you're saying that it, it fed into the it sort of set the scene for like the popularity within the indie rock world or yeah. What I'm saying is that there it was a ripe time for that music because it, it people basically people in their twenties and and maybe early thirties were listening to I mean so was I mean Trace by Sunvolt is a very traditional country album as well you know i mean uncle tupelo you know i think kind of dropped the bomb on the scene by blending all that music early on i mean their version of no depression is a straight up you know cover of a carter family song that that's what made them unique but when you get past that sort of early punk sound they had these guys all tended to go then more traditional so you had people and you know i'll speak for myself and my friends at the time who who grew up more on the Pixies and Dinosaur Jr. And, and, you know, maybe Hardcore or Smiths or, you know, that type of music. I didn't heard something like a song, you know, a Carter Family song, No Depression. So, you know, and then that made me kind of seek out, to your right. point, Christian, those other, fo- you know, those other people. Like, oh, these guys are really good at kind of like I see taking saying. something that's authentic and making it accessible to me. But now, like the blue, it's like the White Stripes or something, you know, now I really want to hear Sunhouse. You know, yeah, now no, I want to hear the Carter family. Now I, I want to hear Alison Krauss. It's kind of funny, yeah, that Detroit, like, blues moment that, you know, and then the Black Keys, like, that kind of stuff actually, I think, did kind of unlock the same, like, Delta blues, you know, the, the more really traditional similar. stuff for a different genre, yeah. Yeah, to borrow a term, cool. it's, a ga- it's a gateway drug. So let's, um, before we close out today, and this has been fun, thanks for indulging me on my, uh, my country music interest, but, um, but let's talk about some of the current guys that we love today. I mean, I think, uh, Christian, you've been seeing a lot of these guys in, in Brooklyn, you know, let's uh, start with Sturgill. Yeah, I mean, Sturgill, obviously, I think, is, is you know, the closest thing we've got to Waylon Incarnate, um, you know, both both because of that sort of booming baritone and, and just incredible vocal control. Um, but in addition to that, he's sort of fuck you attitude um, is, is pretty great. And, you know, I think he a lot of the themes that we, we talked about in terms of, you know, what what outlaw country is like his willingness to talk, you know, to sing about and, and to write about, um, you know, drugs or, or existential crisis, um, in ways that Nashville doesn't necessarily approve of, um, you know, have, have More sort promoted. of earned him this, yeah, earned, earned him this label. Um, he's a little, I, I think he, you know, he just chafes against some of those conventions and, and doesn't seem to mind. And by the way, has become massively popular in the, in the meantime, you know, he's yeah. also selling out, um, Beacon Theater and, and King's Theater here in Brooklyn and, um, uh, and Radio City and that kind of stuff. So, um, so it's a pretty big, uh, it, well, it's, I, it's, it's come back in a pretty strong way, I I'll, guess. I'll but there are one other little tiny wrinkle in there, which is, um, you know, when you say, when you say something like, you know, he's selling out the Beacon Theater or the King's Theater, you know, 25, 30 years ago, country artists didn't go north. Like they only toured mm-hmm. the, they only toured their base. And so we would never have, um, you know, big country acts come up and play, you know, Boston or, you know, that, the, that area is, it was very, it's again, it was a very segregated kind of a well, thing. And part of that's probably just because, you know, while Garth Brooks could definitely have sold out, um, uh, the, 
you know, Boston Garden at that point. Why do that when you can sell out Cowboy Stadium? Um, yeah. I mean, the economics don't necessarily make sense. And not to mention the fact that, you know, there there's the whole uh, the infrastructure of, of a tour of that size. You know, it requires X number of people um, who are actually uh, who are actually, you know, building the sets and all that kind of stuff. And it doesn't necessarily translate that well from stadium to arena. Right. Um, well, and back that and was forth the thing, each time. These guys would be playing. Um, football stadiums down south, and then come up here right. and be playing but you, the uh, you can't do, park you can't, circuit. Yeah, you can't do a football stadium on one day and, and a basketball arena the next. It just requires totally different, like you know, yeah, uh, totally. yeah um, you know. Well, there's some other equipment guys. and that kind of stuff. But the the other guys, anyway. Back to the back to the sort of modern country thing. You know, T Bone Burnett's also um, really sort of put a stake on on promoting a few of these guys and Ryan Bingham in particular from. Um, oh. Goodness, crazy, the movie Crazy Heart, Crazy Heart, exactly with Jeff Bridges, um, is uh, has been terrific. And you know, Hayes Carl is another one of these guys who's just like a beautiful and awesome songwriter. Um, but you know, he comes through town, and Ryan Bingham, who of course benefits from the from the promotion around the movie Crazy Heart, um, plays the Music Hall of Williamsburg. Hayes Carl plays a half full Mercury Lounge, which packs a hundred or two hundred and thirty wow. people when it's packed, wow, yeah. when it's full. So I mean it. It isn't, you know, I don't know that things have necessarily completely changed, but that guy's one of the most, you know, he writes some of the most sort of touching and, and sort of... Uh, uh, when I think there's those Zandt are guys style. that you'll see kind of grow up. I mean, when Wyndham and I first saw Sturgill, it was in Brighton Musical. I will say that it was it was probably jam-packed that night, but, uh, you know, he's definitely now playing the Orpheum in, in bigger bigger mm-hmm. places than that. I mean, I think Margot Price is another one that... Uh, yep. Have you seen her Nick- live... Christian? Yes, and uh, she played Music Hall, um, and Nikki Lane um, similarly played Music Hall of Williamsburg, and of course also not you know gave the nod to the audience that she used to live actually a block from me um, when I was on uh, Grand you know sort of Grand and Keep in, in Williamsburg. So I mean she's she's a product as much of this environment I think as as uh, as South Carolina where she's from. So well, I was going to say actually I think that's part of the thing that's changing a little bit too. I mean in Bingham's in L.A. Uh, or local at this point, right? And then even guys like Steve Earle, who, you know, forever lived in Nashville and, and you know, Tennessee and, and times in Texas, uh, lives in Manhattan, I believe. Except you know, when so lived, except he was in Baltimore when he was on the, the wire. wire. Yeah. yeah, right. And his son is a, you know, singer songwriter who's, who's in Brooklyn as well. So well, I apparently mean, his new album's supposed to be quite good. Hey, I've liked yes, what I've heard is. in the past. Yeah. Um, I haven't heard the new one, but, you know, I think it, these guys, to, in my opinion, you know, that there's this sort of, uh, I don't know, this kind of bloodline, right, that comes from this, it, 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 like I said in the early beginnings of this pod, it, you know, it, it's a genre that there's always going to be people trying to turn back time, but I think not in a negative way. I think in a way that, that keeps this music really pure and, so, and, uh, and just, you know, wonderful, in my opinion. I appreciate the share reference um, yeah, as well. Exactly. But, <laughs> like, I was about to jump on that, too. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, all right, so should we, should we t- I mean, uh, any any final parting words from you guys, or should we take a break and then come back and add songs to the playlist? Let's do that. Let's do it. Oh, fear the hearts of men are failing. Well, these are latter days we know. Great depression now is spreading. God's word declared it would be so. I'm going where there's no depression to a better land that's free from care. 
I'll leave this world a toil and trouble. My home's in heaven, I'm going there. dark hour of midnight nearing a tribulation time will come storms will hurl in midnight fear sweep lost millions to their doom I'm going where there's no depression to a better land that's free from care Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. We are going to end tonight's podcast the same way we end every podcast. Uh, Christian, what are you listening to? Let's start with Jeremy. Jeremy, what are you listening to? (laughs) Well, uh, in in sort of uh, preparation for this pod, I went back to my uh, number one favorite country album of all time, and that's uh, Waylon Jennings' Dreaming My Dreams. And uh, highly recommend it to anyone who hasn't listened to that album start to finish. It's a kick-ass uh, country sort of rock album that that really is everything that I love about uh, southern rock and country. Wyndham, Wyndham, how about you? Um, I was going to say uh, for the what am I listening to? I watched um, Nick Cave, the Nick Cave doc, um, once more with feeling, and and uh, it's brutal. Um, his it's about recording the skeleton tree, and his son dies halfway through. And it's uh, heavy, um, like you expect anything Nick Cave does to be. Um, I have always been fascinated by Nick Cave, as a, and I've said this to you guys countless times. I'm fascinated by anybody who is such a character who doesn't appear to be playing a character. And I, you know, I felt the same way about Prince, um, that you, know, you have to be Prince 24 hours a day. Nick Cave has to be Nick Cave 24 hours a day, and that seems burdensome to me. But um, he comes off uh, as much more... Uh, human and and um, you know sort of uh, um, I don't know just sort of his personality as a as a person rather than a performer is on on um, profile here so you can you know I I'd, I'd highly recommend checking it out it's on Amazon Prime cool yeah that's uh, that that looks great I'm I'm looking forward to checking that out and uh, finally the the four and a half hour Grateful Dead uh, documentary. Um, strange trip, dude. Just wrapped that one last night. It's actually really good. Oof. It is good. Yeah, it's a little daunting. Um, but uh, so, I mean, I guess I've, I've just been... Just get really stoned. Uh, yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'll have to. Um, but, uh, it, you know, the I, I guess I've been putting together, a, I've been reviving an old playlist um, called uh, Edancipation Proclamation, which was um, sort of, which I guess I made probably in 2006 or seven originally, but it's sort of uh, a ton of great dance punk from, um, and, you know, electro clash kind of music from, uh, from the mid two thousands. So, um, pulling together, I guess I have been listening to uh, a bunch of Fisher Spooner, which has been awesome. And, and, um, particularly that number, that number one, their first record, mm-hmm. um, was, was really terrific. So, uh, that's been on pretty heavy rotation for me. All right. Well, and then cool. we're going to close it out by uh, adding a, uh, each adding a song to the um, 147,652 <laughs> top 10 songs of all time. Number nine. Jared, what do you got? Yeah, so uh, I'm going to move out of the U.S. and up to uh, Win. Thanks for defending 
Canada Neil Young earlier because I had a Neil Young song on on uh, on Slate there. So uh, one of my favorite Neil Young songs and a song that needs to go on our playlist. Everybody knows this is nowhere. Great Neil song. Young. Christian, what are you hitting? Well, um, I guess you know with Waylon on the mind. Uh, are you sure Hank done it that way? Welcome on any mix ever. And I'm gonna uh, round out a uh, a country three for this week. Uh, I'm gonna go Glenn Campbell's Wichita Lineman, one of my favorite songs of all time. Nice, D- definitely a top ten song of all time. Definitely. Anyway. Well, I think mine was too. So yeah, I agree. <laughs> I agree. I um, yeah, there's just so much like there's just so much swagger in that. <laughs> God, yeah. he could deliver. Um, yeah. Anyway, all right, this was great. Thanks so much, Jeremy. It was awesome. Uh, awesome yeah. learning about this stuff. Thank you. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks, guys. Have a good one. Catch up next week. That's it for this episode of Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Many thanks to Simon Doom for our intro music, Hair of the God, and to our heroic producer, Damian Kendall. You can learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Tweet our mistakes and your recommendations and follow us on Twitter and Facebook. And it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Until next time, on behalf of Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis, thank you for listening.